Hi there, and welcome back to the 2022 summer season of 76 West, a podcast from the Lambert Center for Arts and Ideas at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan. Conversations at the JCC are made possible by Zabars and Zabars.com. I'm Jason Blitman from the Lambert Center for Arts and Ideas, and what a pleasure it was speaking to best-selling author Gabrielle Zevin about her new book, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. And I can't help myself, so I talked to her about her 2014 book, The Storied Life of A.J. Fickery, as well. Gabrielle Zevin is the New York Times and internationally best-selling author of several critically acclaimed novels, including The Storied Life of A.J. Fickery, which won the Southern California Independent Booksellers Award and the Japan Booksellers Award, and was long listed for the Impact Dublin Award, and Young Jane Young, which won the Southern Book Prize. Her novels have been translated into 39 languages. She has also written other books for young readers, including the award-winning Elsewhere, which is on Time Magazine's 100 Best YA Novels of All Time list. She lives in Los Angeles. And now please enjoy my conversation with Gabrielle Zevin. How are you this morning? Good. How are you? I'm good. I'm so happy to meet you. I used to live like really close to this JCC. I used to live on uh, 80th and Amsterdam. Oh, I have so much on my list to talk to you about. (laughs) I just want to dive in. Is that okay? That's fine with me because the book feels very like filled to me and which has been kind of cool because I don't know what people are going to talk about. Like I can do a whole discussion where I don't discuss race, where I don't discuss like, you know, you know, certain things about the book at all, you know, and it will be completely on this other path. It'll just be about like feminism or technology or whatever, Sure. (laughs) you know? So well, and that's partly fun to do these conversations with folks from all different spectrums. Cause like yeah. I look forward to talking to you about Judaism. Right. And <laughs> which I imagine not everybody is talking to you about. No. Um, <laughs> but, no, but although it's funny because like I did uh an interview with the I mean, I guess we'll just put this in the conversation. We're already recording, but the uh-huh. uh I did an interview with the like with an Asian American press outlet, and you know, they were like, Why have you chosen to focus so much on Asian Americans in the background of like and the background of Sam and not the background of Sadie? And I'm like, Well, actually, there is pretty much it's pretty equal between the two but right. from your point of view you right. see it as like it's only that I was like well you know her background kind of plugs into the fact that she makes this game like and, and, you know, and like so many things about it so not only do I want to talk to you about tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow but I also have AJ Pickery things to talk to you about I also fun fact fun fact I grew up in South Florida really what town yeah so I can't, I don't typically tell this to people when you, when I say Florida, because they don't always know, but I grew up in Cooper city. Yeah. Cooper city. Right. I could say that to you and right. you know what that means. I do. So that is, that's interesting. I, I mean, I grew up in Boca Raton, right, which yes. is obviously like pretty much the most Jewish place I think in all of Florida. <laughs> I know. I, so you like reverse retired. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, the only things going in Boca Raton in the eighties were Jews, some alligators, and uh, IBM, which is my both my dad, my dad, who is Jewish, worked for IBM. And so we were there. And we did actually, at one point, it was very underdeveloped then. There was an alligator in our backyard. So, um, but but yes, I once looked it up and it was 66% Jewish, which gives you a really strange outlook on the world. You start to think like, 
Like I had no idea that Jews were such a small part of the population until I left the world to, to, to I left the world of Boca Raton. And I was like, wow, there actually aren't as many Jews as I think. I, yes. And it was same in Cooper City, there were a weird disproportionate number of Jews. And when I went to school, I went to college in Chicago. I was some of some people's first Jewish person they ever met. Right. I mean, I went to Harvard and there are Jews there, but not nearly as many, you yeah. know, which I think typically people maybe would go, if you were coming from some other destination, you might actually find like, wow, there are a lot of Jewish people at Harvard. But in fact, I was like, why are there so few Jewish people? <laughs> <laughs> you know? Oh my God. I love that. Um, so I, I'm, I want to hear a little bit of your life story and how you got into writing, but not a lot of it because there are too many other things to talk to you okay. about, but for our audience, who is Gabrielle Zevin and where is, where does she come from? I have no idea. <laughs> I don't know. I you should know? call her. Right. <laughs> I feel like, um, the weird thing I, so I published my first novel 17 years ago and, um, you know, the weird thing about that is you feel like those books were written by like a complete stranger. And so, but I will say that over the years, my view of fiction, and this will plug into your question, has changed because I think when I started out, I wanted to make sure that nobody would possibly think that anybody in this book was me, you know, and, and I think fiction was more of a mask I wore. And then over the years, I feel like I've been more revealing in fiction and that the books have you know, become closer to myself. Like I've never written until this book, which is my 10th, a half Asian, half Jewish character before. I don't think it would have uh, occurred to me to do so. Mm. <laughs> as crazy as that is, I am, this is where I say, yes, I am a half Asian, half Jewish character myself, you know? Right. <laughs> so, so, so that's who I am. I think, I think so much of that comes from, um, you know, I'm equal parts like my dad and my mom. I'm equal parts like, Boca Raton and Koreatown, you know, <laughs> or something like that, you know, and, and, and it's funny, like my memories of a, as a kid are, um, you know, the sites of my youth are very much, you know, Jewish things and Asian things, <laughs> you know, so I can, there was like, a, I, there's a picture of me, I think like doing like Hanukkah candles while wearing a hanbok, which is like a traditional, like Korean garment. <laughs> You know, so I mean, I feel like that's my background, really. Uh, my I grandmother, know. she worked in, um, she was the jeweler at the like Hyatt, the Hyatt Regency in Honolulu. And so, you know, we used to go visit her a lot on vacation. And so that was kind of my first experience of like seeing, you know, many, many Asian people together at once. <laughs> and, wow. and, uh, and it's very strange. So your identity always shifts depending on where you are. Well, and to your point about Boca, I imagine there, you didn't come across a lot of Korean or Asian people in Boca, but the, the, compared to the amount of Jews that you were encountering. No. And in fact, I think the thing that that does is it makes you um, shift the way you think of yourself toward the thing that is the thing around you, you know? And so for many years, I think I would have said forward, like, you know, I'm culturally Jewish is like mm. the first thing, you know? Mm -hmm. And then weirdly, um, I had little ruptures of realizing um, that in fact, I was equally Asian, you know? <laughs> so oh, wow. like, like the first time I went to Japan to promote a movie, um, a movie that I had written, you know, I, I had an experience of feeling, and I had this experience again when I moved to LA and it was kind of in Koreatown for the first time where it's like massively Korean, you know, just, I had this experience of feeling like I would be a different person if I had been raised here, you know, that I think I would have written different 
different characters, like the way I would have centered myself culturally would have been different, you know? So I guess, so I think it's a loaded question. Like, who are you? Because I feel like (laughs) who are you shifts depending on where you are. And I think, you know, the book is about that in many ways, both even in terms of like how your identity can shift from your online self to your real life self, you know? And I think there's an extent to which, these days we have more agency in how we can create and present ourselves than maybe we've ever had, or more sense that there's a possibility um, to uh, present who you wish to, you know, that there's, that identity is not as fixed as it used to seem, you know, and I think this is really an interesting thing. Sure. I want to start talking about your book. Okay. I just loved it so much. <laughs> to, uh, do you have a, have you worked an elevator pitch yet? <laughs> about what, what what's the what is what can you tell us what the book is about I can try to tell you what it's about but I think um I have had trouble in these months um yeah. articulating it because I think it's about a lot of things at once and I know people say that but I feel like it is for me personally the book is about I think the essential conflict of the book is between these perfect worlds that Sam and Sadie try to create and just the imperfect worlds they live in and why it's worth continuing loving people and making things in an imperfect and uncertain universe. And yeah, it's about video games. So sure. And also, you know, the, the <laughs> idea of video games kind of metaphorically you can use to describe the book as well. It's about winning. It's about losing. It's about, you know, starting over. It's about uh, hitting the reset button, you know, the replaying uh, collaboration. Um, but it, it's so impossible to reduce, reduce is maybe a bit of a strong word, but to, to kind of simplify it in that way. Um, I I am discovering that I feel like a genre of story that I love is um, is a is a really beautiful story in a in an envelope that I find myself not typically drawn to. Hmm. Um, I'm not a video gamer. Yeah, I couldn't put this book down. I have never watched a full game of football. I don't think I've ever seen a single game of football. And Friday Night Lights is one of my absolute favorite TV shows of all time. For sure. So it's it, it, uh, suddenly after reading this book, I was like, oh, I have a thing <laughs> where <laughs> it's like, oh, that typically wouldn't be my genre. And wow, I cannot believe how deeply moved I am by uh, the way that the story is told. Well, that's a lot of comments at once that I want to unpack. <laughs> <laughs> so the thing is, I think most people are, if they're not video gamers, they are gamers in some way. And the argument I would make for that is, well, it's twofold. One is that really... To understand gaming is to understand that it's just another form of storytelling, you know? Yes, yes. Which for anyone who has not thought about it this way before, this book beautifully articulates that. And I turned to my husband, who is a gamer, and I was like, I want to start playing video games. I need to (laughs) immerse myself in these stories. Yeah. And I think it's interesting, you know, for me, I think that was interesting was that, you know, the first generation of people to play video games as children are now turning like 40 and 50, you know? So sometimes people will say to me, this is a novel for young people. And I'm like, well, is it? <laughs> like, you know, and so it was interesting to me to write a book that um, was about the coming of age of, of people, but also the coming of age of an industry. Because if you look at something like Pong, which is literally like two lines and two dots <laughs> versus what we have now, which are games like The Last of Us or something that are very, you know, that have cinema quality graphics that basically look like a movie, you could easily see the story of the evolution of tech in these years. And so it was interesting to me to watch these people grow alongside an industry that was also growing, you know, and but, but I do think to get back to the first point, everybody games, even when they don't know it, there's something yeah. that they play. Um, I think play is really helpful. Healthy for people. And I also think um, 
particularly with video games, I think something people don't understand is how much social media is a video game. You know, how much if you're using Instagram, if you've ever used a social media network and you're in it for the hearts, you know, that is the rewards based system whereby you are playing a game, you know? And so I think most people, even those who are like, I'm not a gamer, I'm like, but have you gone online in the last two decades? <laughs> you know, then you're in a game of sorts. Maybe it's not like a really fun game, but it certainly is affecting your life, you know, and it shares a lot of the same qualities as, say, a, a massively multiplayer online RPG, you know, or something I mean, like that. Even getting in the shortest line at Trader Joe's is a game. It is a game. It is, you know, and and I don't think we even think about it in that way. Well, I mean, I think there's ways in which like if you can gamify your life, um, your life can be in certain ways more enjoyable, which is a different point because, you know, so there are studies that talk about why people are like they'll do things in a game that they hate doing in real life. Like, why will you spend hours moving rocks in a field in Stardew Valley? But if somebody asks you to move rocks in a field, you'd say, no, I I don't want to do that. I don't think moving rocks in a field is fun. And personally, for me, I've always really liked racing games, but I actually hate driving, which Mm. doesn't really make any sense, you know? So I think, you know, these are interesting things about, about gaming. Um, And yes, but regard to, you know, uh, Friday Night Lights, I think what is really interesting is how sometimes another subject that isn't a subject that you think you want to read about can provide, uh, with its distance, can provide an illumination on your own life, you know, because it isn't, it isn't you, you know, like if you're just reading something that is very close to you, that is characters that are exactly like you, if anything, the distance between you and the book you're reading can create a healthy space of, I almost want to say healthy space of empathy, you know, a healthy space of just being able to have an insight that you wouldn't have had otherwise, you know? Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's as storytellers, I think that's what we hope for in general from the folks who are encountering our art. Um, my background is in theater. Hmm. Um, and so uh, right. I, I've never quite thought about it in that way before. Like, oh, it's the fact that it's so different that makes me tap into it in a new way, which is exactly what I hope for when an audience encounters something that I've worked on. I mean, I'm sure it's a curious thing in the brain where your brain has to start making new connections because it's um, it's looking for ways. I think the brain looks for ways to make sense of things. It takes shortcuts, you know, so it looks mm-hmm. for ways to say, you know, where am I in this story? Where am I in this narrative? Because I'm not obviously in this narrative. Right. And I think and yeah, that's things are really familiar. Helpful. Right. So these yeah. there are new like neural pathways, <laughs> for the game, um, which I think are really, really healthy. And, uh, you know, it's funny. I have the opposite thing too, which is like, there is a kind of story I really like to read, which is probably like the Kunstler Roman, the coming of age of an artist, you know? Uh-huh. And I think this is solidly in that too. So I have a feeling, you know, with a theater background, et cetera, that probably like these characters are more similar to you if you understand that video game making is a kind of art right absolutely I was like oh this was this this book was injected into my bloodstream I and I was it was basically a part of me and that that startled me I mean because the book is like theater kids which was an interesting thing to me as well how much like you know you think of a very like I don't know you think of a gamer as Maybe this like this typical gamer is this really like heterosexual guy like sitting in like his mom's basement. I don't know why I'm describing him this much, but in <laughs> fact, and, but in fact, a lot of times that same guy is doing the same thing like a theater kid does in New York. You know, they are like um, creating a character 
that they are playing in a video game or virtual world, you know? And so in fact, like that kid doesn't call himself a theater kid, but he's like a video game theater kid, you yeah. know? that right. these activities are actually related, you know? Oh, absolutely. And and I, I think for the first time connected the dots, which is embarrassing because it couldn't be more obvious that like <laughs> role-playing game. It's role-playing. <laughs> it's literally theater. I joke all the time that, you know, I try not to take myself too seriously when talking about theater because at the end of the day, it's, you know, people putting on costumes and playing pretend. And it's like, oh, that's, it's a role-playing game. Right. Um, and so it's and very then, funny. And then all the words like play and play. You know? Oh yes, oh yes, that and and that is a huge theme, of course, in the book. Speaking of, yes, the title, the title, to the title, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. For those of you who don't know, is I mean, uh, again, theater kid, obviously inspired by uh, the the famous Macbeth soliloquy, um, and it's interesting because I think that you choose uh, the title of your book from a Shakespeare tragedy. <laughs> and and yet it's like peppered with comedy and peppered with, there's also, we talk about Twelfth Night, we talk about also the Odyssey, the Tempest. There are a lot of kind of epic stories involved, um, but the title comes from a tragedy. Can you talk on that at all? Yeah, I mean, a title for me is one of the two most important things I need to know when I'm working, you know, and in this case, I feel a sense of anxiety until I have come up with that title. So I like to know what an ending could be. Sometimes the book is not going to have that ending, but I like to know that, you know, the plane could land in some right. way. And I like to know what the title is. And I didn't have this title till probably at least 30% of the way through. So the whole time I'm kind of like, like literally sleepless, like what will this book be called? It cannot be called, mm. you know, 2017 game novel or <laughs> whatever <laughs> it is. Um, and I wanted something I knew I wanted the title to be a little bit grand because so many people think gaming is sort of a silly activity, unimportant. Gaming is really, uh, you know, an incredibly young art in a way. It's not been around that long, you know, and so I wanted to have a sense that the title gave the subject some weight. Now, that said, the title came, obviously comes from, you know, Macbeth's Act 5 soliloquy. It's one of the bleakest speeches in all of Shakespeare. Um, but and, it, and it's one of the first pieces of Shakespeare I ever committed to memory. So it has that meaning in my life as well. And I can still do it on command, but no one ever asked me to, you know. Just uh, you wait till the end of this podcast. Well, <laughs> You know, I've just you been waiting for my moment. Like that. Yeah, well, I've been putting it out there to see who's going to take me up on it. But, but yeah, you know, so it, it comes from one of the bleakest speeches in all of Shakespeare. But the character who invokes it in my novel, who's Marx, he finds great hope in it. You know, the idea that every day we're alive is a chance to start again. And he also finds, conveniently for me, a metaphor for video games with their infinite lives and infinite chances at redemption. And I think the thing to position it is that when Marx is proposing this alternative reality view of tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, he's actually trying to pitch people on the name of a company, you know? So mm -hmm. the question is how much Marx actually believes his interpretation or how much he's just trying to sell something at that moment. But, you know, but there are words that I, I found it to be, once I came up with it, um, really a perfect metaphor for what a video game is and the appeal of them. The fact that, you know, every day, you're alive, you have like, you know, you can have these sort of infinite lives there. Are, you know, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow when Mimpeth says it really is so bleak. It's like, <laughs> mm -hmm. but in fact, there is great hope in the fact that we do wake up every day and there's great, and there's great promise when you're a video game character, the immaculateness of that, you know, so all of those things at once. The book also 
um, addresses things in, I think, a very unique way for other uh, perhaps less sensitive topics or less mm. uh, triggering topics like same-sex marriage, like pronouns. Like there are, there are you kind of hit on things in this uh, uh, very delicate and interesting and articulate um, nuanced way that is not hitting people over the head over this being a thing. But, um, and I noticed that also a theme in in AJ Fickery as well, just uh, you clearly are a human that sees the world as a colorful and diverse place. And it was important to you to write about the world in the way you see it. And that was an exciting thing as a reader. And can you talk, how, how, did, how does that come to be for you in your writing? Well, to an extent, you know, some of that has to do with living long enough to be able to be amused and interested in the changes and not afraid of them, you mm -hmm. know? And so, so when the pronoun thing comes up, that's in the mid nineties. And somebody recently asked me like, that's cool that you're talking about that in the mid nineties. And I'm like, well, you know, and I'm like, it, they're like, that seems like, you know, new. And I'm like, it actually isn't that new. And so far as like the earliest use of a they pronoun is in Chaucer, <laughs> you know, Okay. Um, and I think there's just a little while ago, but it's just a little while back. Right. And, and I could remember in the mid nineties in college writing essays that used and address the they pronoun even then. Mm. So things that sometimes seem new are not new, but what was interesting to me was thinking about, and what I wanted to have happen there was for the characters to seem sort of forward thinking and, um, a bit, a bit visionary. And, and, and I think, you know, when you're talking about a video game character, so there's a video game character called Ichigo and he's a, they are a little, they're a child, you know, and you can't really tell because of the quality of the graphics, you know, what gender that child is necessarily, you right. know? And so they determined that the best thing would be to call them a they, but of course, like the big like marketing companies do not like this, you know, and then Ichigo becomes a he, you know, is one of the things that happens. And what was interesting to me was just thinking about, about that, how that these characters were ahead of their time and thinking about that and how something that, you know, is more common today was very uncommon then, you know, right. in, in a certain way, you know, so like what, what is interesting to me again, are the changes in the world, you know, how we think about appropriation, how you can be on the right side of an issue in 1995 and the wrong side of it by 2022. Yeah. So not only appropriation, but you also have such beautiful things to say, uh, beautiful, that's a very, uh, I'm going <laughs> to, I like beautiful. I'm going to rewind beautiful that. Seems good to me. Well, beautiful, beautiful about appropriation, beautiful ways in which you address the Holocaust. I mean, beautiful in the sense that they're challenging. Right. You present yeah. them to your reader, to your audience, to your gamers in within the world of the book um, in a way that turns it on its head a little bit. Um, so you talk about, about Ichigo, can you talk a little bit about Solution? Solution, which again, not, not too many, I don't want to give any spoilers, but Sadie, one of the characters in the book, one of her early games is a game called Solution. It's inspired by her grandmother's experience in the Holocaust. And yes. was, was that, do, does your family have Holocaust connections? Was it just as a Jewish person, something important for you to, to put into the book? Can you talk about that? We do, but I don't have, like my grandmother was not a Holocaust survivor, but we do have relatives who I did not know <laughs> because they died, right. you know? Um, and that said, in living in Boca Raton as a kid, you know, I remember we'd have survivor day once a year where we would meet these survivors. And then I just remember as I was getting older, just thinking like there aren't any left. <laughs> 
you know, and feeling the sense of that, the sense of that, you know, loss, you know, that it was so these, you know, those days were so memorable to me, just hearing people speak about it, you know, firsthand. And they really left an impression on me as a kid. And we were, and again, being a town that was 66% Jewish, we were very fortunate in that we had so much access um, to, to that. And so that was something that left a great impression on me. Um, these speakers we would have every year and sometimes twice a year. But, um, you know, the game solution that Sadie comes up with, it's inspired by the fact that her grandmother uh, survived the Holocaust. And the game is kind of a version of Tetris. And I don't know if this is a spoiler, but I'll just describe it because it happens fairly early in the sure. book. You know, so the it you are making these, building these kind of widgets. You're assembling these blocks of things. And, you know, in a game, often textual information will come up. But if you don't stop to read, a lot of people don't read that textual information. They just want to play the game like, oh, I just want to like, you know, hit the button and make the things. But if you don't stop and ask what you're doing in solution, you will find out that you were actually working in a company for the third Reich. So the only way to win solution is to lose solution, basically. Um, and that otherwise you will have been a facilitator. And to me, that was an interesting thing. To me, it was a way in which kind of games can be a great metaphor and can have great use for talking about, um, I guess, what it is to be complicit, what it is to um, just be somebody who looks the other way and doesn't notice things. Right. It's something that came from a thing I feel sometimes just as a citizen right now, you know, where I feel like I want to act, I want to help, but not knowing, I think a lot of us feel this way, what to do that's useful, you know? <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and so it came out of that, just thinking about what it is. Um, and, 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 but the game obviously has a mixed reception, you know, you know, she's making something that's subversive, you know, when she makes it and it offends one of her other classmates for we, for reasons which we can imagine um, are both like very good reasons to be offended and possibly ones that have more to do with, you know, her relationship to this other person, you know, and so that's one of the things a solution came from. Um, and, you know, obviously, you know, for me, uh, I, again, I was born in 1977 and I just think, you know, as somebody of that age, um, the Holocaust felt very present to me in my life and in a way that I'm not sure that it feels as present to somebody born in like, uh, you know, now <laughs> it definitely sure. doesn't. It feels like and, and the farther you get from it, the less it seems possible that it could have ever happened, you know, <laughs> in a certain way. And also you, know? you even even talking about Survivor Day, I you say that to me as someone who grew up in Florida in a very heavily populated Jewish community. And that means something to me. I had Survivor Day. I right. don't, I don't okay. know that that a lot of other people did. I don't, I don't think there's there a lot access. of, I don't think, first of all, I don't think even our towns could have had the, have those anymore. There just right. aren't people oh, no, that are the not. age anymore right. because you would have had to have been born, you know, unless you were a very little kid, you know, you would have had to have been born basically in the twenties, you know, to be in Survivor Day. And anyway, right. so it's weird. It's just a sense of like time passing and, um, and I think, again, writing a book, th this was the advantage of writing a book that takes place over about 30 years is being able to talk about um, many different things, you know, mm -hmm. um, you know, in a way, to me, the book is, um, it's about, it's about video games, but it's also just about what it was to be a person in the world from, you know, 1984 to 2012, <laughs> you know, just what it is to 
try to make art and live, you know, in right. the in those years. And and these have been really interesting times. In so many ways, I feel hopeful because I think there are still like progressive things, but I'm also like all of us, I think, fearful about, about, about things as well and frustrated and angry. And, and, you know, like I said, I don't believe anymore. I think when I started out as a novelist, I believed I could change people's minds with books. And I don't think that anymore. What I think is I can depict something for you and maybe hopefully, um, you can, if I can depict something truthfully for you, maybe that will just give you a glimpse into how somebody else lives for a little bit. And maybe that's something, maybe that's something that fiction can do that, you know, just screaming on, you know, the internet can't do. Something that I find so exciting about the two of your books that I've read is that they're so accessible to a really wide audience. They're not YA by any stretch of the imagination, but they're also not just for adults. Was that something intentional in terms of when you said about writing them? I think good writing uh, should be clear to many people in it. Um, I have written for children. I haven't written anything for children for over a decade, though, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I've always gone. Well, well, when I was writing, I was always going back and forth between uh, writing for children, and writing for adults. And, you know, so I suppose probably some of that uh, comes in. But I think, um, you know, I. I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't worry about it as much as I used to, like who, who the reader is going to be like, (laughs) it doesn't factor as much for me as it once did for sure. Um, and, and, and I will say like, I hope that, um, you know, I hope that like a sophisticated teenager certainly can read this book. You know, I think, I don't think you have to have been born in the same year Sam and Sadie were, which is, you know, they're born in 75 and 74 to find something to relate to and, and tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. Right. It's accessible. It's relatable. I think across a lot of of spectrums. Right. And I don't think our older listeners should be afraid of the book either. No, exactly. And that's my point. It's like, as a, as a non-gamer, I just, I was a little concerned about was what I like, be I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, and I think there are just a, a certain reader, I think that is like they're going to hear video games and they're just going to think like this has nothing to do with me. But I promise if you can just, again, just like maybe if you want to just imagine the video games or novels, you know, maybe if, <laughs> yeah. you know, then if you're somebody who read AJ Fickery, you know, I think that will be your connection to it. You know, understanding that again, video game really are just another form of storytelling. I mean, but also looking at the cover and you have a Shakespeare quote written in the style of a video game. And that just like is a fun juxtaposition, exciting thing in itself. (laughs) So much about play, so much about starting over, so much about failure. So how, much about you, failure. How do you deal with how do you deal with failure? What's your do you have a go-to? Um, I don't have a go-to, but I will say that I would I told my agent when I was describing the book that I think it's largely a book about failure. Mm. And he said to me, Can we please stop saying that? <laughs> <laughs> but I think it is, you know, so to me, this is not a book written by somebody who's only written one book. This isn't like a first time novel with somebody who's got all the answers and is sure everything will go like right for them. What I will say is what I find comforting is to tell people that, you know, careers in the arts are probably anywhere else are not like just straightforward trajectories. They don't just go up and up and up. You know, they have little plateaus. They have little spikes they are not, again, straightforward, both creatively, like you don't, as much as you want to, each book isn't better than the one before it. 
And they're not straightforward in terms of business either. You know, so I've had failures and successes, and that's something I wanted to write about. I think um, the thing that I've had to become the best at is learning how to to fail and move on. You know, and and failure can be a really creative place if you allow it to be. Because the thing that happens, you know, I've had like a book like The Story Life of A.J. Fickery sold 5 million copies around the world. The next book didn't sell nearly as many copies as that, you know. And so you kind of think, well, I'm like upset. Why didn't this sell as many copies as that one? Well, a lot of reasons. But the best thing that happens when you have a failure like that is everything gets really quiet. And then you can really go do the work again and you can just really hear yourself really well. And so there's benefits to failing, I think. Um, And I think some of that is in. in the book as well. Yeah. I mean, again, not to keep going back to the title because it, you did a good job picking it because it does, it does cover all of that, right? Like it, it, we all fail. We, you, it's video games. Yes, you can beat them, but you could try, you, you take, it it takes a lot of losing in order to, it takes a lot of losing your mistakes to then win. Um, And ultimately not to be bleak, but like, we all do die at the end, you know? And so like, we, we are all kind of losing and yet we have to get up every day and try again tomorrow. Right. You Um, have to get up every day knowing the inevitable, which is that life is finite, you know, but still you have to like, you have to, you know, try. And and so that's kind of the existential dilemma. You know, what do you do with tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow is, are they a series of bleak tomorrows or are they a series of just, you know, possibilities, you know. I mean, it's, it's also a conversation about art and everything evolving. And so it's not just your own life winning and losing, but art and 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 the next day there will be something different and and you're adapting and changing. Um, I Reading the book made me think about, um, are you familiar with the play Picnic by William Inge? I am, I am. So it's been years since I have read it. Well, so I don't know if you know this, but William Inge was not pleased with the version of Picnic that played Broadway that became a huge commercial commercial mm. success that became a movie, a very famous and popular movie of its time. Um, and he really didn't like different pieces, especially the ending. And he rewrote it and he changed the title to something to, it's now, it's called Summer Brave. And it's essentially the same play with a few minor tweaks here and there. And no one ever does it because it's not the famous picnic that everybody <laughs> knows, but it's the play that he wanted. And so it's so interesting that, again, art is evolving and you don't always think about that as an option. Yeah, um, I mean, I, that's so interesting because I think um, it makes me think, again, how... <sighs> how success is not always exactly the thing you think it is, you know, mm-hmm. that you would think, Hey, look, I've written this hit play and that's success. And, and it feels like success should feel like you arrive somewhere, but it doesn't always feel that way. You know, that there's still things to, uh, you know, I just really admire that this, like, I I'm somebody who can't stop revising, you know, I work all the way until they pry the thing from my like cold. (laughs) So I relate to that, you know, I will, and I, and even like, again, we're going, you know, there's going to be a movie, the story life of AJ Fickrey. And when the movie tie-in was coming out, I was still making changes. And this is now eight years later, you know, and so not like huge changes, but just little things. And so I completely relate to that um, completely. Um, It's a really good story. Like, yeah, I just, I think that's part of the work. Part of the work is not just how it's received and what it gets, but the work itself is the work you know? Mm-hmm. Right. 
Right, exactly. It's the it's the doing the work it's and the, the and the tangible work. Sure. Yeah, um, I remember I did a play once. Uh, one of my first professional things. It was a play that premiered at the Tribeca Playhouse, which was down. Uh, it's right near uh, where Ground Zero was, and so this is mm-hmm. like September of two thousand one. And so anyway, so September eleventh happened, and but my play went on, but you know, obviously, was not maybe what it could have been if not for <laughs> September eleventh. The wow. play opened about a month later. And I remember a friend of mine saying to me, you know, I said, well, this is a sort of disappointing experience for me. And he was like, no, you know, when you do the good work, it's the good work that makes you better, you know, and it's something I've always really held on to, you know, all the time. I love that. Yeah. Something that is, again, addressed in in A.J. Fickery, which I have to say, I love the order that I read these two books in. I think it's the optimal order, to be honest. Yeah, I, it really, I was like, really, it made me appreciate tomorrow so much more. Um, but you you talk about writers having a thing in yeah. AJ Fickery. And and I would argue that there are a handful of things, I say in quotation marks, that you have that I am obsessed with as a writer. But one that was very, very prominent to me is the is creating fiction within your fictional worlds. So yeah. in t- Tomorrow and Tomorrow, you of course have these video games. And in uh, Storied Life of AJ Fickery, there are stories. That, yeah. that you write can you what is that process like right or how did I, I I loved that you created rich worlds within the rich worlds that you'd already created well that's a really interesting question and thank you I think that um so when I started out as a writer I used to think I should never repeat anything I did ever again you know which of course is a huge mistake because one of the things you can do when you work across multiple books is improve upon the thing you did in the last book, you know? And so there were ways in which when I went to write tomorrow, which was, there was one book in between there um, that I wanted to improve upon the fiction I had written in the storied life of AJ Fickery. Like I knew that tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow would only work if the games felt really convincing, if the worlds they, you know, that it, it actually like relies on those much more so than the storied life of AJ Fickery. So when I'm doing it, um, it's a sort of, you know, it's a kind of organic process, but also, organized too. You know, I think about what are the things that came out that year that were successful, you know, like what, mm-hmm. what, what kind of, what was the technical like on those? And then, so I'll kind of come up with a reference so that this thing seems plausible in the time that I'm presenting it, you know, and then after that, I'll, you know, go and um, think like, what would kind of the concept be that makes sense for that? And I come up with all these references to make something that makes sense um, based on that. And then after that, you have to make it a creative thing that is its own, you know? So it's it's all of those things. Thinking about, again, historically, what were people making then is probably the most important thing um, to think about, you know, to make something feel plausible, you know? Because with games, particularly, the tech changed so much during that time that what people could do with games changed a lot, you know? And so that was a thing. But yeah, I mean, really, it's very similar. Writing a game, writing a novel, it's very, it seemed it's like very a lot more work way. for you. I was like, oh, she has all of these stories happening in here. That was a lot of uh, creative writing you had going on. Well, I mean, like in the story life of AJ Fickery, each of the short stories is real. That's obviously, you know, it's, they're not things I wrote that are his like shelf no, talkers. But, that are, but, but later but I mean, there is right. the there a short things. story that you do write. Yes. Well, that one was fun to write because I won't, again, it would be kind of a spoiler for that book, but just to say that I had to think about, um, 
the ways I used language, you know, yes. when I was a kid, you know, so right. for instance, there's a point in which the character, so it's, it's a story written by a 14 year old, you know, and I remember like at, at one point in the story, she uses like automatic automated teller machine and as opposed to ATM, but like, because I think she thinks it sounds fancier, you know, <laughs> yeah, so things like that, you know, thinking about who is the person. A little insight to you it. as a young person. Yeah, I think so. You know, yeah. like whatever would be fancier would be, or that seemed more like I have a knowledge of what an ATM ATM is what those initials stand for, you know. Um, but I also think, like, and to to the point for both the books, it's always thinking about who is the person making it too. So you're imagining um, this creator, like why they are making it. And in the case of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, usually it had a lot to do with their their backstory. Um, in terms of the things they make, which is true of me as a writer as well. Like things that have happened to me become books, you know, they become transformed into art. That's how I think that works. So like what we talked about solution, that's so much influenced by the fact that Sadie's grandmother is the most important person in her life, you know, and, um, and thinking, of, and, and I think Sadie's great empathy for her grandmother's experiences. And then later when they make this game called both sides, so much of that comes from the fact that Sadie's sister um, is a childhood leukemia survivor. And just thinking about, I think, um, what that would be like when the, your like kind of best friend and your sister uh, is suddenly is, you know, facing the existential dilemma of, <laughs> of your, your, your best friend and sister dying, you know? Right. So, and I think all of these things, it's easy to do if you're just thinking from the point of view of what the character would do, you know? And so all of the games come are just extensions of the, the people who make them. And all the stories are obviously that, that the short story that you're talking about in the story life of AJ Fickery completely comes from who that person is, you know, mm-hmm. and what has happened to her in her life. I loved there is a moment where they speak where they're talking about Pac-Man and, and a quote is you can kill the ghosts, but only for a little while. And if you don't take it or, and and if you don't take time and if you don't time it right, the ghost can come back and kill you. And I was like, oh my god, yes! <laughs> Which is literally what happens in Pac-Man. It's literally so. what happens in Pac-Man. Yes, <laughs> right. I'm so like... if you you can sit there and play Pac-Man <laughs> and just think you're like stupidly chasing and eating pellets, but in fact, you know that game has like all the metaphors for life just in it. You know? Right. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Stephen Sondheim's Merrily We Roll Along. I am, yeah. Well, so this this book also gave me Merrily We Roll Along vibes. <laughs> well, that's great. And I and it again really moved me. I was like, uh oh, if I if I know Merrily at all, I know where this book is going. <laughs> um, yes, I mean he's one of the great poets of like middle age malaise, which I feel like <laughs> is something you know, and kind of the promise of youth. And I I feel like you know you know obviously rest in peace. I I just feel like you know, he's a huge influence for me overall, you know, oh, like I'm trying, I'm trying to give you company vibes. Yes. <laughs> I'm trying to give you all the, all the Sondheim vibes, you know, I'm obsessed. Okay. We're Jews. We question, we ask a lot of questions. Okay. I'm going to ask you a few rapid fire questions. Okay. What is the book that changed your life? <laughs> I'm going to laugh. I think yeah, I'm, I'm a Jew who questions, but not a Jew with a lot of easy answers about That's anything, fair. you know? So I feel like the book that changed my life, um, just they all do. I, I don't have a good That's answer fair. to it. That's I'm fine. sorry. I'm sorry. Fine. If you could only eat one thing the rest of your life, what would it be? Probably sushi. I'm wearing a sushi shirt right now. You are. I, I didn't realize that. Literally, <laughs> could that be the reason? You know, I feel like it's healthy. You know, yes. if, I'm, if I'm stuck on an island good somewhere, protein. I'm going to learn how to do this. You know, yes. myself. Oh my god, so, I love that. Anyway, um, who's the teacher that had a big impact on you? So many of them, really, but probably Mr. Belboni in fourth grade, who um, 
<laughs> we had a really like joking relationship, but he let me, instead of doing some other big research project, he let me write a, a play for us all to put on, you know? Oh, I love that. So I feel like just when teachers kind of go out of their way and do something that creates a lot more work for themselves, just to like, you think when you're a kid that that's just easy, but it's not, you know, it's yeah. from somebody taking a lot of time and a time for you and with you. And, and I feel like I've had a lot of teachers along the way that did that. Yeah, me too. I'm very grateful to all of them. All right. One more. What's something on your bucket list that you've either done or have, or are looking forward to doing? I don't think I have a bucket list. You know, okay. I'm just, I'm just happy for whatever arrives. I think, you know, I don't think I, I appreciate that vibe. You know, I, I don't know that I do. I'm trying to think if there's something I'd really, really like to do. Um, you know, I haven't been to Iceland. Mm. <laughs> I haven't seen a lot of Northern Europe. I mean, I've been many places, but I haven't seen um, Northern Europe. So I would like to see that someday, you know? Uh, I, yeah, I feel that. I feel um, like bucket list is always travel stuff for people, which is dumb because it should be other things. You know? um, uh, if we had more time, I would ask you what restaurant based on a novel you'd want to dine in, which is a question that you pose in your book. We could just think about it. Everyone can think about where they want to dine. <laughs> Um, I mean, I feel like for a while, at least in a gentleman in Moscow, which I don't know if you've read, I no, feel like I personally, I feel like I personally could live there um, in the hotel, even though he's in like captivity, like spending the rest of my life in a hotel sounds not that bad, you know, that kind of thing. Okay, you, know? you had that off the top of your head. We didn't even have to just imagine it. You knew. I would love to hear your soliloquy. But if you do have to run, <laughs> I respect it. <laughs> You, uh, you, I did offer it you up. Put it you. out there. Yeah. Okay. Well, like, hopefully, it's going to come and not be like, you know, scared out of me. Well, if it's um, scared out of you, we can cut it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give it a go. Um, let's see. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps at this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools their way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life is but a poor player who struts and frets his hour upon the stage, then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Yes! <laughs> I don't even know if it was all right, but it sounded right. It's mostly right. I could have like opened it up in the there. Book, You could have opened it up, but yeah. <laughs> I love that. Gabrielle, it's so nice to meet you. So nice to meet you too. Have a great rest of your day. Bye. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. Thanks for listening. Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow is on sale now and available wherever books are sold. You can even play Emily Blaster, one of the video games that Sadie Green creates in the book on Gabrielle's website at gabriellezevin.com slash emilyblastergame. And to our Shakespeare purists out there, I want to acknowledge that Gabrielle was only slightly imperfect in her Tomorrow soliloquy, but I was still very impressed. This podcast is produced by Udi Ehrman and me, Jason Blitman. Our editor is Matt Temkin with music written and performed by Peril Wolf. 76 West Summer Podcast Series will release new episodes every other week. If you liked what you heard, share it with a friend. My mom did and her friends loved it, though they might be a little biased. Thanks, Mom. You can also like and subscribe so you'll be the first to know when a new episode drops. Until next time. <laughs>